Hi, this is Denise Crosby, and you're listening to Women at Warp. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jara, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have Sue. Hi, everybody. And unfortunately, the rest of our crew wasn't able to make it today. Um, Andy sends her regrets. She began reading the book we're going to discuss before realizing it had post-Deep Space Nine spoilers. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll miss Andy and Grace today, but we're going to try and have a good discussion about our most recent book club selection, Worlds of DS9, Volume 1, about Cardassia and Andor. Yeah, Andy sent us a message that said, um, last time I checked, the O'Briens only had one kid. And we were like, <laughs> stop now. <laughs> yep, uh, our bad. But before we get into the discussion, we have a little bit of housekeeping. As you may know, our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support our show, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to watch along commentaries. Our most recent Patreon exclusive one was a commentary on the trouble with tribbles. So uh, visit patreon.com slash women at warp and uh, sign up for that if you're able to. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help people discover our show. And now on to our, uh, oh wait, I think we have maybe one other item of housekeeping, which would be convention. Yeah. Um, well, I guess by the time this is released, Star Trek Las Vegas is over and I will use my future vision to say that Jarrett and Grace had an awesome time. But uh, coming yep. up over Labor Day weekend, I will be at Dragon Con. Uh, schedules are coming together. I will be all over the place, and it looks like on at least 14 panels right now and growing, which is a little bit... Oh my gosh. Intense. Um, <laughs> but we'll see what happens. As of right now, there is a panel that will be titled Women at Warp, even though it will just be me. It's really like a Women of Star Trek panel. And uh, as of right now, that appears to be on Saturday morning after the parade. But just to be sure, if you're going to be at DragonCon and want to come hang out with me, check the schedule app when the schedule is actually put into the app, which will be about seven to ten days before the con. Cool. All right. Well, let us get into our main topic. So this is uh, the the most recent selection in our book club. If you want to join our book club, you can do so by going to Goodreads and searching the groups for Women at Warp. And uh, this book was suggested by one of our listeners um, because... In the past, we've talked about and we've had a blog post written about Keiko O'Brien and how she maybe isn't the most popular character ever. Um, and so it was suggested that we read this book that uh, the first part is sort of Keiko focused and we get to see her sciencing and things. So uh, this book is part of the DS9 relaunch series and it's set after Unity. Uh, so before Typhon Pact and I think before Destiny. And it is, I would say that, like, it's nice to have read the other books in the DS9 relaunch prior to that, uh, but maybe not 100% crucial. But there may be some things that you're just like, I don't really 100% get that, um, like, peripheral characters that are referred to, that if you aren't familiar with the relaunch series, then that might not be significant to you. Um, but overall, I think you can digest it without 
having thoroughly read them. I had only read like two of the other relaunch novels that are set prior to this, and I still felt like I got a good sense of it. Yeah, and for the most part in the relaunch books, I tend to follow the TNG stories, so I don't necessarily have the DS9 background. But I think the most important thing to know is that it is, of course, post-Dominion War, and Cardassia is sort of reeling from the Dominion slash Jem'Hadar occupation and takeover. Mm-hmm. So the first part is called The Lotus Flower, and it's by Una McCormack. So one of the reasons we chose this book is it has uh, women protagonists and two women writers. And um, did you actually know that Una McCormack started out by writing Cardassia-centric fanfiction? I, well, I did not know that before it's in her bio in this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I mean, we've talked before about how, you know, a lot of fan fiction writers have ended up writing the official novels. But um, in uh, her bio on Memory Alpha, she talks about um, being saying, like, I'm a fan fiction writer by history and inclination, by which I mean, my instinctive response to a text which affects me in some way is to move into the space of that text, inhabit it as entirely as possible, and start writing from within it. I had barely finished watching What You Leave Behind before hitting the keyboard. I had to write about this, about Garrick's remorse, Zial's murder, Damar's sacrifice. I found, thank my lucky stars, a beta reader of great skill, a professor of English literature, no less, who coached for me my first novel-length piece of writing, an alternate universe story in which a Tain successfully destroys the founders and Garrick returns triumphantly to Cardassia for a while. I read deeply into the history of the rise of Nazism, particularly Gitta Sereni's outstanding biography of Albert Speer, and some of what I learned fed into my stories of Cardassia and the architects of her ruin. So that's pretty cool. And I would also like to read that first novel-length fanfiction if it is out there anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to maybe give a quick synopsis of this part of the book? Yeah, so Keiko and Miles and the two kids have gone to Cardassia because, like I said, the, the occupation really destroyed the planet and they're they're suffering and she is running a project where they're basically trying to make the land able to produce food and plants again and she's the director of this project where she has you know handpicked her staff and invited everyone to bring their families and is trying to really make a community out of this scientific project but there is some discord between some different religions on Cardassia which we really haven't experienced before and the Vedic from Bajor is actually coming to visit. You know, it's a political statement slash diplomatic joining of hands, yada yada, because the Bajorans and the Cardassians are trying to be friends and move past the prior occupation of Bajor. And some of the Cardassians aren't happy about it. And they're very concerned with preserving what they have left, is the phrasing that often gets used. They're concerned that they're going to lose in Cardassia, what makes them Cardassian. And a young girl, one of the daughters of the, one of the scientists that works for Keiko, who feels she should have been the director, by the by, is brainwashed by one of these religious sects. And during a speech from the Vedic, stands up and has a bomb strapped to her chest. And they have to talk her down and figure out why this happened and figure out how they can just not heal the land of Cardassia, but the people as well. So they can move forward and sort of rebuild. 
Yeah, I mean, in this case, she's actually brainwashed by sort of like an anti-religious sect because right. um, the religious sect is like the the Aurelian way that we learn are first introduced to in the Garrick-centered book, A Stitch in Time. And uh, Keiko is letting them sort of freely worship on the um, project where they're doing this terraforming. And um, it's upsetting some of these people who think that this is sort of polluting Cardassian culture and that if we want to uh, repair Cardassia, we have to go back to our old traditions. And this is actually like a way older tradition, but it's it's basically people clinging to their culture in desperation mm-hmm. sort of and, you know, something that um, they're able to empathize with a bit because of what happened on Bajor. And you see the way that the similarly the Bajorans clung to the prophets and really resisted like secular education. It's kind of the reverse happening on Cardassia. Yeah. And this woman, Tila or Tela, maybe is the one complaining to Keiko about the Aurelian way worshiping in the open. And she says things like, well, they can worship however they want. I just don't want it to be public, mm-hmm. which feels very current yep. <laughs> in, in our political climate, even though this is not relatively recently published, I don't believe, but it's interesting how many of the themes 2004. Um, how many of yeah. the themes make me think about what's going on right now? Absolutely. But it's her her daughter Nira, who is uh, taken in by a group called the True Way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that her mother Taylor is really subscribing to to either. No, I think she sees herself as just you know common standard quote unquote Cardassian. Yep. And she's really appalled when this happens to her daughter and sort of blames herself because, you know, her views of just like, well, you know, I guess I can tolerate it as long as it isn't shoved in my face. Um, we're just like a more restrained version of the views that influence her daughter. Mm-hmm. To like basically take it to the next level that they shouldn't be here and we should, um, you know, commit violence to get rid of them. So. Yeah, I would agree. It was definitely, I felt like there was a lot that was relevant going on. There's also like a lot of stuff about the um, political struggles between Gamor and his political opponents. Garrick's all up in there. Miles is all up in there. I felt like I wasn't as, I don't know, maybe I think part of the issue with this is that in order to really appreciate those political things, you maybe had to read the other books. (laughs) Um, Like there's they refer to these shadowy men who are maybe engineering some of these, some of what's going on, but they don't really ever tell you who they are. So like I posted in our Goodreads group saying what is going on with this. I was really confused. And uh, we heard from Lydia who has read all of the other uh, relaunch books and says, at the time I first read this, I remember being reminded of the smoking man from the X-Files. I guess I thought that they were part of something, perhaps the Obsidian Order that Garrick was ousted from that was pulling the political strings on Cardassia, especially after they mentioned him specifically in the final appearance. Mm. So much of Cardassian politics are shrouded in secrecy, espionage, blackmail, etc. And I always got the impression that the Obsidian Order had no loyalty to any particular side, that they were always trying to be on the side that would allow them power or to achieve their goals. So I think when I read it, I thought they were responsible for pushing the xenophobic and exclusionist ideology that ended up causing the crisis that unfolds. So that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to know if there was more significance that was just missed there. 
What did you think of the way that Keiko was portrayed since that's one of the reasons we picked this book? I thought that quite often her dialogue I could hear in her voice. So I thought that was really well done. Mm -hmm. But I actually really appreciated that Keiko and Miles weren't fighting, really. I mean, she was shown he was tearing apart, what was it, the food replicator Mm -hmm. to to fix it or the temperature. I think that's what it was, the thermostat, basically. Mm -hmm. And instead of, I feel like, how it would have been on the show where she's annoyed and frustrated, she was was just sort of that, like, playful, like, oh, haha, this is what he does. What would he do if I wasn't here to to keep his head on straight? Mm -hmm. Which is, like, stereotypical in its own right, but still something we don't see as often. So it was nice to see that it was loving, I guess, rather than contentious. Yeah, I would agree. Um, there's also a moment that I appreciated where um, Miles gets frustrated and says something racist about Cardassians. And she she says, like, that's an ugly thought, which I think is the exact line that she used in, in the episode where they have the sort of almost adopted Cardassian kid with them. And um, I appreciated that because it would it's like totally in character for him like that his um, prejudices are so deeply ingrained that even you know trying very consciously to override them and taking his family to Cardassia that when things get strained he reverts back into prejudice and racism although when he did do that I thought it was interesting when she came back and said that's an ugly thing to say he said no I didn't mean it like that I meant that you know, this is the the situation that this person has grown up in on Cardassia, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it could be seen, sure, as like trying to talk your way out of it, but it felt like he was at least being a little bit more thoughtful about things, even if mm-hmm. he didn't initially express them in the most sensitive way. Absolutely. I don't think, um, I think it clearly shows that he he's checking himself. So it's not like he'll never have those thoughts again, but he knows that that's not, you know, who he wants to be. Right. And that's something I think that's important. I think I read it on, it's almost silly to say, I read it on Tumblr several years ago that the first thought is that you have, like if you think something mean towards someone else, is that thought that is what society taught you. And then if you find yourself checking yourself, saying, I, why did I think that? That's not how things should be. That's what you've learned. So it's kind of nice to see that he's doing that because, I mean, I think we all mm-hmm. do that at times. Yeah, for sure. I think that one of the things I was a little bit disappointed in is that in terms of the plot, Keiko doesn't actually do much to drive the plot. Like a lot of the stuff just kind of happens to her. And it's cool. There's like one chapter um, 18 where they're in the really tense situation and the the Vedic mm-hmm. is talking to the girl who has the bomb attached to her and Keiko's flashing back to her childhood. And it's kind of this metaphor of the lotus flower um, and that like first drew her to biology or botany rather. And um, I thought that that was really nice. But right. overall, it's like the politicians and Miles and Garrick and Gamore and, uh, you know, the other, mm-hmm. you know, it's mostly guys driving the the actual plot with the exception of um, uh, Nira or Naira, the girl. So it was pretty enjoyable. I, I feel like in terms of world building, it didn't make me feel like I was particularly more insightful about Cardassia, but maybe that's partly just because we've seen Cardassia more on the show. 
I get that. I think it's a different part of Cardassia. I think we're so used to seeing like the political goings on on Cardassia and not so much the the farming towns. And that might be why it felt a little strange. But I did also want to say I think it was nice, fitting, reciprocal that, I mean, we saw Keiko on Deep Space Nine basically moving there four miles for the job that he got and not really having much to do as a botanist, as she even points out in the book. So she wound up teaching school and she wound up doing these other things. But then in this story, they have relocated to Cardassia for her job and for her opportunities. And he's doing what he can there. So I think that was nice for their relationship as well, to see that Mm -hmm. sort of decision being made. Yeah, absolutely. So um, should we move on to the second part of this book, which is Paradigm by Heather Jarman, and it's about Andor. Mm -hmm. I would say, like, in contrast, this story has a ton of world building, but it's also a really, really action-packed plot. Um, So I really appreciated that it felt like everything in the plot also added to the world building element. And by the end, I was like, I want a vacation on Andor. <laughs> um, except for maybe the food. <laughs> but um, I think like probably the most fascinating aspect of this for me and probably for us as a podcast is that the author and the rest of the creators in the uh, Star Trek novel universe decided to take a cue from the episode Data's Day, where Data says that Andorians marry in fours, and extrapolated to say Andorians have four sexes, and you reproduce in groups of four, and um, built really a whole culture off that that then was like not really carried through to Enterprise. Um, so debatably non-canon, but still like it was really, I thought it was really interesting to explore. So yeah, so in this story, Char who is one of the ensigns on Deep Space Nine. His mom calls him back to Andor. His mom's the representative on the Federation Council. And she wants him to um, basically come back and show he can be traditional because her position is being questioned. But there's also uh, a funeral for his old bondmate. So another person in the four-person bond that he had been bonded to who committed suicide and he was deeply in love with her. Um, and so in order to support him, his friend slash romantic interest, a human ensign, Prin Tenme, goes with him. And also with them is a counselor, uh, Philippa Matthias, or Matthias. I'm not actually sure how you would say it. And they have lots of political and drug related and, uh, <laughs> culinary adventures and dangerous <laughs> adventures on Andor. Uh, so this would be one where, you know, the characters are, there's almost no characters you would recognize from the show. Um, but I, like I said, having only read a couple of the books before this, I s- didn't find it a huge barrier. I was still pretty into what was going on with Char and Prin and the other characters. <laughs> Initial impressions? Well, the thing that I think is most obvious about this story is how based on sex and or gender it is, including Mm -hmm. those stereotypes. Because the whole story is about like these relationships, these bonding and reproducing relationships and how it takes, you know, one of, they keep saying gender in the book, Mm -hmm. but really, I guess sex, um, Mm -hmm. it takes one of each to, to reproduce. And there's a fertility crisis 
uh, happening on Andor. So it's a huge issue that they've like restructured and now like put people into a system that helps find bondmates most likely to result in procreation because it's, it's a huge issue for the culture as a whole. Um, but there are descriptions of the different sexes that are just very stereotypical. So it's all about gender and sex stereotypes. And there's even a scene like when a, Prin and Shar are basically like at a club almost mm-hmm. where Shar is pointing to different Andorians and trying to coach Prin on guessing their sex, mm-hmm. which felt not great to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's something that, that we don't want to do in our human culture, clearly. Yeah. But it is eliminating the idea, at least from Andorian culture, of gender fluidity in Anyway, yeah. So in the there's like an end note in the book that says none of the Andorian sexes is truly male or female as humans might define them. Andorians do, however, accept male or female pronouns in order to simplify their interactions with the various two sex species that dominate the Star Trek universe and to avoid unwelcome questions about their biology. So, like two of the sexes are referred to as she, and two of them are referred to as he. It certainly seems like one of the ones that's coded she is the one that actually births the child but i'm not 100 percent clear on that i think that's the the zavi or or zen is i guess the name of the sex yeah it's zen and then uh zen or zen and then uh javi is like the Mm -hmm. name for that person as a parent and so there's like the zen the shen the chan and the than or the tan i think it's than Mm -hmm. Um, and so each of those has a different term for like a familiar term of address, a formal term of address, uh, like a beloved term of address, a parent and a child. So it's a little confusing. And also a lot of the names sound really familiar, like th- are similar to each other, like Thantis and Triss and Thrishar. And so there's a lot of I, I maybe would have appreciated like the end note stuff at the beginning so I could keep referring to it because I, I did have a bit of a hard time with the names at first. Oh, see, I thought it was well placed in the book because <laughs> I could just quickly flip to the last page. I didn't find it until I was done. <laughs> oh, that makes sense then. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's um, I wouldn't say it's like super you know, this would be like, this is how we would want our gender relationships on Earth. Like, not at all. Um, Right. And everything is, you're right, very prescriptive. But it's like, it's clear that it's very tied to this fertility crisis, that basically the society has engineered these groups of four into like arranged bonds from the time they're children Mm -hmm. and coaches them in school that nothing is more important than the whole, which is always capitalized. And it has a lot of different meanings in this book. Um, but that you basically can't be fulfilled as one person and to, to claim you can is arrogant and basically like almost heretical that you would go off on your own and have a fulfilling life by yourself and without a bond of four. And so that's part of what Char is struggling with because he left for Starfleet and, uh, then had issues with not wanting to return to his bond. So I thought that was interesting and I thought that, um, it helped to have, Shar as a character that you could see stuff from their perspective a bit as an insider or like inside outsider, I guess. But then like Prin and Philippa 
help you sort of digest things as a total outsider. So like, I really appreciated the part where Prin is hanging out in the keep Mm -hmm. where they end up, which is like basically the other sex mother of the bondmate who committed suicide. And uh, they're basically grudgingly welcomed. And um, Prin is wandering around and she comes across a sex ed class. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the teachers is like berating this kid for studying for a different class during the part where they're talking about the bond. And like, it's like class, the instructor said, in a tonal unison, the class recited, with the bond, we are whole. Without the whole, there is nothing. And then the Chan, uh, like the the kid who was berated has to say that out loud. And then uh, the teacher says, you've uh, acted to satisfy your needs, not theirs and not their those of the whole. One alone cannot be whole, nor two, nor three. What one chooses is chosen for all. What befalls one befalls all. Their lives are yours. And then he has to say, my life is theirs. That is the first truth. Never forget it. It's like basically the first commandment. And, uh, and the kid is, starts crying and Prin starts crying watching it. And there's like, clearly you can see that even though Char ends up deciding to return to a bond, a lot of that is connected to this feeling of duty towards Andor. And there's an acknowledgement though, that forcing people into the bond, just like trying to force people to be straight, uh, in our society basically can destroy them. And that you can't make people be something they're not. So I thought that there was an interesting sort of line into that discussion. Yeah, and there's an acknowledgement towards the end, too, from the, I guess, birth parent of the bondmate who took her own life, who says, I don't, who was blaming Char for that Mm -hmm. and actually says, I realized that this was my fault for forcing her into this bond. And for, and what was it that the whole possibly smothered her? Yeah, um, that's not the exact quote, but that's sort of the sense that um, maybe the whole was too much for her. And we see Char rejecting it as well. So yeah, we see Thriss um, in a scene during the Battle of Beta Z where um, in her uh, parents' memory where she has to amputate her parents' arm and she's basically like cool under pressure and thriving in that environment. And so her mother figure... Um, basically really says like that was when she was really strong, but it, like I basically pushed her back into the bond and into how I wanted her to be as an Andorian and that actually contributed to her suicide. So yeah, so I thought it was really powerful. I mean, it feels kind of Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. In a way, in that there's there's this birth crisis, this fertility crisis, and it's resulting in sort of a return to fundamentalism. Yeah, absolutely. There's like people painting blood symbols on their doors mm-hmm. to invoke certain guardians and, um, you know, having massive violent protests um, against the more secular government. Um, basically, again, like that this idea that when you're under threat that you go back to the way that things were and, and to traditions to protect you. And in the surrounding books, this fertility crisis leads to and or quest- a founding member of the Federation questioning their relationship with the Federation. Mm-hmm. And we see the beginnings of that here with um, Char's Javi 
is the the Federation ambassador, mm-hmm. basically. And there's a lot of call for her to step down or to be replaced or for their entire government to be replaced. And so that's the beginning of that tension with the Federation as a whole. Mm-hmm. And she's also a really interesting character. And actually, this there's a lot of interesting women with different roles. Although, I, you know, we're not supposed to view the Andorians as, like, male or female as we would consider them. But it's hard not to when they're called she and they're basically framed yeah. as that character's mom. Um, but so I'll, you know, I'll say that she's a woman for the sake of this discussion. Um, but, yeah, Vretha, like, she's a, uh, like, really ambitious politician she plays politics she uses her son a bit as a pawn but she still really loves him and uh similar to thris's mom sort of is able to come to a bit better understanding of you know what's best for their kids nearer to the end of the episode or uh, book but yeah it was interesting uh, there's also thea who's one of the she's a traveler they meet on this uh transport and she's more religious and challenges Shar for not fulfilling his duties on Andor and uh, for his mother being part of the more progressive secular government. And then um, she ends up uh, her bondmates kidnap Shar's mom. There's so much that happens in this book. It's it, like, give it's half a novel and there's so much packed in there. Um, so her bondmates kidnap Shar's mom. She helps them find them at the very end of the episode or book, Shar actually decides to recreate a bond with his two old surviving bondmates and Thea because Thea has been left by hers. It's really interesting. And Thea is a really interesting character who goes from being like a really true believer. And then because of the depth of, of her beliefs, when her bondmates leave her, um, she attempts suicide and just has this tremendous, tremendous grief, but she's able to find healing in the bond with the others, which still feels kind of creepy because of how brainwashed, like, integrated it is into their uh, them as children. But it was really fascinating. Yeah. There's also, um, I think we should talk a little bit about this, the whole um, scandal that's happening behind the scenes, which is what's sort of driving the action that there's these rumors that the government is allowing the um, sort of national science uh, academy or institute to run experiments that would re-engineer Andorians to only be two sexes so that it would be easier to reproduce. I didn't read it that way. I read it as they could reproduce with only two of the sexes instead of needing all four. Okay. Which made me wonder, like, any two, as long as they're different, or what? Because if only, I mean, we don't know much about their anatomy. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows if it's even played out anywhere, like if anybody wrote it out to, in order to write these books. But like, if only one of them has a womb, per se, or the equivalent of a womb, wouldn't that one always be necessary? So like, there were, I had a lot of in-universe science-y questions about that, which we don't get answers to. But obviously, if you have, you know, four sexes, and I guess suddenly two of them would be, quote, obsolete, that would not be great. Yeah, I think that, that that's how I read it. And that's how it's sort of implied at the end of the the book that it would become like a dual sex species. So it's never, I think, I, I would say like one of the things I wished this, I wish this had been explored more thoroughly, yeah. but there's already so much in this 
book. But yeah, because like, how exactly would that work? Are you saying that like two of the sexes would just die off and the other two would keep reproducing? Um, which is sort of that's sort of how I read it. But it's not clear like which two sexes, how that would happen. And it's very like, firmly from the very beginning, like compared to Mengele and uh, Romulan dude that was the bad experimenter mm, on mm-hmm. people um, that Bolana hates, that guy, yeah. um, is referenced. And uh, it's interesting because, like, because we don't actually hear too much about what experiments these are, you're basically, you're told that they're really awful because of the outcome. Instead of, like, with the Romulan guy, what was, pr- the problem was the methods. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a bit of a, maybe not a straight ahead uh, comparison that works because you don't, there's no evidence that they're using bad methods. It's just that they're like the fact that you would even consider making this four sex society, a two sex society. And there's one really quick thing. It's almost a throwaway in this book. I think it's Shar explaining that the scientists are considering the idea that Andorians actually evolved on a different planet. Oh yeah. Because nothing else on their planet has this four sex system there it's all two although they find a plant that does later okay i must have missed that that's okay yeah they find a plant that does later and then thea's really happy because she's like i always knew my beliefs were justified yeah it's just it's very weird and i don't know if we'd heard that anywhere else before if that was just a device for this story but mm-hmm. i i really appreciated how well the world building flowed in in and out of the plot that um like for example okay so we don't really know what andorians wear but like there's many mentions of like the andorians you saw in the original series and how things have changed since then and um there's you know a part where prin gets an outfit and she describes um how the outfit looks on her and how it feels on her and so as a human you can sort of imagine yourself wearing an andorian outfit and um same deal with like the rooms that they sleep in that are basically these big communal rooms and uh the uh they go to a festival and have dancing and there's different groups of people and uh, Heather Jarman does a lot of work describing the scenery. They, you know, go on this rescue mini- mission to rescue Varetha and they're in caves and they're in this desert, but then they're also in like two different cities. So you feel like you kind of got like a travel guide to Andor at the same time as the story. So I, I thought that was well done. Yeah. And I also appreciated that at some point Prin is wearing these traditional garments and then they're going to a different location and they get rained on or something and she changes them in a way like she takes off one of the pieces and wears the top in a different way. And, you know, it's like supposed to make us see her as more attractive, I guess, to Char because there's that love story going on. But the character takes the time to say, is it okay that I'm wearing this this way? Is anyone going to be upset with me? And the question's never really answered. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, at least it was asked. Mm-hmm. So the very end of the book was, I didn't love it. Like, I I was actually found the relationship between Prin and um, Char fairly compelling. There is, like, a point where it, it could have gone wrong where they're at the festival and they're both drugged and Prin is, like, flirting with him and um, sort of, like, begging him to kiss her. And he 
so, like kisses her and then realizes like she is she's seriously drugged and she's actually in danger and I can't take advantage of this and I have to get her help. Um, so thank God. But um, I yeah I found it really compelling and um, but uh, the very end he decides to go off with his bond group and Thea because of this sort of sense of just feeling right and feeling at home and feeling like a need to serve Andor a bit better and um, he sends. Prin this like Andorian betrothal token with a, like a locket of his hair inside and a note that says someday and I'm like dude you can't do that <laughs> <laughs> like that's really sweet but you can't just be like hey wait for me and when I'm done bonding and having a kid and raising a kid with these three people I'll be back and we should get married <laughs> I mean I, I'm assuming he didn't actually expect that to happen but I still felt it was a little unfair it's, um, it's yeah. a little presumptuous maybe <laughs> um lydia in our goodreads group said the story was full of the feels for me because i had been shipping print and shower for some time i was upset by the end but it felt like the right call well yeah i guess i kind yeah. of i don't know i would have liked to see print and char together more but um yeah i mean i could understand like d- certainly i was sold on his con- conflicted feelings and why he would make the choice to stay and uh yeah, I don't know. Overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, we did have a comment from Lee in our Goodreads group who said, I felt a little lost with this one. The central characters seem to be from a story I don't know and, and or is suffering from a crisis I could not quite divine. I was able to fill in some blanks through context, but the severity of the crisis is still missing for me. So we kind of talked about that. Um, just that's just, you know, I think a valuable perspective for, from someone who hadn't read any of the novels before that maybe not the best place to start. I think the difference is that the Cardassian story you basically get set up for during the series. Mm-hmm. And this one you definitely don't. All of the setup is is coming from the books. And yeah. there is there's no recognizable character on DS9. Like there's mention of Kira. Yeah, but that's and Bashir, it. but that's it. Oh and but yes, that's right. And Nog, I guess. But yeah, like they're all just yeah. offhanded mentions, like, oh, you're doing the thing Nog did. Oh, I'm getting this medicine for Dr. Bashir. So right. yeah. yeah. Agreed. I really enjoyed it, but um, I can see that, like I said, it just might not be the best place to start if you haven't read the other relaunch launch novels. But yeah, I really enjoy the relaunch novels, but I do think that that is one of the downsides to them is that because it's the shared continuity and because it's these ongoing stories, it creates more in-depth storytelling for people who are following it, but it's really hard to jump in and just pick one up if you're not following it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, um, yeah, overall, I don't know. Do we want to, do we rate the books? How do we do this? How do we wrap up? I don't think we have before. All right. Well, I will just, just in the interest of being, uh, you know, out of character, I will, uh, rate this book, uh, 4.6 out of five cool garments that are comfortable and slightly androgynous, but able to be dressed up if the occasion requires. <laughs> It is incredibly specific. Yes. <laughs> quite a high rating. Um, well, I, yeah, I would say I, I um, you know, I really enjoyed it. I would say the second part did more for me than the first part, but I would, I would say that it's pretty solidly written throughout. I think it's really nice that they did this series. I'm saying nice a lot in this episode, and I don't know why, but that we can take a look at the the world and the cultures of the different aliens that we see on Deep Space Nine. And I think it helps 
build out the universe even more, even though Star Trek is a really built out universe to begin with. Um, but I would give this, yeah, I would say I really enjoyed it too. I, how about uh, four out of five grilled giant beetles? Yes. <laughs> cool. All right. So thanks for joining us for our episode listeners. Um, Sue, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And you can find me on Tumblr at TrekkieFeminist.com. So thanks so much for joining us. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us at crew at women at warp.com, or you can comment on our Facebook or our Twitter at women at warp or on our website, women at warp.com. We always love to hear from you. And uh, if you join our Goodreads group, you can join in the next discussion and su- help us uh, suggest our next book club pick. Yep. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, including Mission Log and Priority One, you can visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.